Chapter 11, A History of California, the American Period, by Robert Class Cleland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 11, Jackson, Tyler, and California. In previous chapters, an effort has been made to show how the people of the United States became interested in California, how, year after year, the hide and tallow ships sailed from New England ports to ply up and down 500 miles of California coast, how the fur traders, coming and going with the seasons, opened up the overland approaches to the Pacific and brought back tales of a richly endowed, ample but undeveloped land, how, on horseback, in ox wagon, or on foot, the western pioneer with wife and children forced his slow way across the continent until he found a permanent home beside the western sea. It is now necessary to go back and take up the awakening interest of the United States government in California, and the various attempts made to purchase the province in the decade prior to the Mexican War. Although the Russian advance caused the American government grave concern over the fate of the Oregon Territory in California, no other official interest appears to have been taken in the affairs of the latter province until twelve years after the announcement of the Monroe Doctrine. In the meantime, Andrew Jackson had come to the presidency and placed Anthony Butler in charge of the American legation in Mexico. The appointment of Butler to the position was one of those unfortunate mistakes for which American diplomacy has acquired an unenviable reputation. For Butler's character and qualifications eminently unfitted him for carrying out any commission of trust or responsibility. And the devious course of his career in Mexico constitutes a curious and unsavory episode in the history of American-Mexican relations. The chief object with which Butler concerned himself while in Mexico was the acquisition of Texas. From the outset, his communications to the State Department began to hint at bribery as the best means of accomplishing his purpose, and soon he was urgently writing the Secretary of State to resort to bribery and corruption, or presence if the term is more appropriate, to bring the negotiations to a successful close. When Jackson refused to sanction Butler's unethical proposals, the latter obtained permission to return to the United States to lay before the President a more extensive plan for the acquisition of Mexican territory. This, in brief, centered around the possibility of obtaining Santa Ana's consent to the proposed session by the secret use of a large sum of money. As intermediary in the transaction, a priest named Hernandez who stood very close to the Mexican dictator, had already been selected. Hernandez, according to Butler, had agreed to bring about the desired results if $500,000 were placed at his disposal to be judiciously applied. In urging this project upon Forsyth, who was then Secretary of State, Butler asserted that the plan offered an assured method of extending the sovereignty of the United States. Quote, not only over Texas, but also over the whole of that tract of territory known as New Mexico and Higher and Lower California, an empire in itself, a paradise in climate, rich in minerals and affording a water route to the Pacific through the Arkansas and Colorado rivers. Though Butler's geography and his diplomatic methods were alike unreliable, 
and though Jackson refused to countenance his scheme of bribery, the president unfortunately did allow him to return to Mexico to continue his feudal negotiations and bring further discredit upon himself and his government in the eyes of the Mexican people. Meanwhile, however, Jackson himself had become imbued with the idea which Butler had suggested of acquiring higher California as part of the Texas program. His interest in the territory was further stimulated by a letter received from William A. Slackham, a purser in the United States Navy, whose praise of California was credited by John Quincy Adams with having kindled the passion of Andrew Jackson for the 37th line of latitude from the river Arkansas to the South Sea to include the river and the Bay of San Francisco. At any rate, from whatever source the impulse came, Jackson instructed Butler, when he returned to Mexico, to open negotiations for California as well as Texas, thus ushering in more than a decade of diplomatic maneuvering on the part of the United States to gain possession of the province by peaceful means. Butler's instructions, if carefully read, reveal the true nature of Jackson's interest in California. This did not arise, as some historians once charged, out of a desire to secure a new field for the expansion of slavery, but was primarily born of a desire to further the expansion of American commerce. The boundaries proposed did not include territory south of the well-established line of the Missouri Compromise, but embraced only the regions north of the 37th parallel. The great object was the Bay of San Francisco, which had been, quote, represented to the president as a most desirable place of resort for our numerous whaling vessels engaged in the whaling business in the Pacific, far superior to any of which they now have access. The mastery of the Pacific was thus, in fact, Jackson's aim, not, quote, a bigger pen to cram with slaves, unquote. The price which the United States would be willing to pay for the desired region was not specified in Butler's instructions, but rumor later fixed it at $500,000. For various reasons, the bargain was never consummated, if indeed it was ever brought to the attention of the Mexican government. Butler was soon recalled and a better man sent to take his place. For six long years, however, as John Quincy Adams wrote, he had mystified Jackson with a positive assurance that he was within a hair's breadth of his object and sure of success, while Jackson was all the time wriggling along and snapping at the bait like a mackerel after a red flag. The conception of Andrew Jackson wriggling along and snapping at the bait like a mackerel after a red flag would not likely occur to any other than Adam's sarcastic imagination. But even Jackson at last came to understand the character of the diplomat he had sent to Mexico, and at a later date, with his usual directness of speech, he branded Butler a liar in whom there was neither truth, justice, nor gratitude. After Butler's withdrawal from Mexico, Jackson made a further effort to secure the cession of California in connection with the independence of Texas. In the Jackson papers preserved in the Library of Congress, one may see the rough draft of a proposal Jackson drew up to submit to Santa Ana when that illustrious general was in Washington seeking to arrange for the mediation of the United States between Mexico and Texas after his disastrous defeat and capture in the Battle of San Jacinto. Chapter 2
the memorandum is unsigned but the writing like the spelling is andrew jackson's it reads as follows quote, if mexico will extend the line of the united states to the rio grande up that stream to latitude thirty-eight north and then to the pacific including north california we might instruct our minister to give them three millions and a half of dollars and deal then as it respected texas as a magnanimous nation ought to wit in the treaty with mexico secure the texans in all their just and legal rights and stipulate to admit them into the united states as one of the union at the time that jackson was making this proposal to santa anna he was also urging upon w h horton the texas minister at washington the necessity of including california within the limits of texas in order to reconcile the commercial interests of the north and east to annexation by giving them a harbor on the pacific he is very earnest and anxious on this point of claiming the californias wrote horton to rusk in reporting jackson's suggestion and says we must not consent to less this is in strict confidence glory to god in the highest though none of jackson's efforts to secure california met with the least shadow of success his program was taken up by a later administration with considerable zeal van buren harassed beyond measure by financial matters had little energy to devote to foreign issues but when tyler succeeded harrison the california project became once more the subject of serious concern daniel webster at that time was secretary of state and waddy thompson united states minister to mexico the enthusiasm of the latter over california's possibilities bordered on the extravagant and his efforts to secure the province's annexation to the united states were unceasing indeed no man of his generation had a truer conception of the importance of the acquisition of california in the development of american greatness than waddy thompson in his first despatches from mexico thompson urged upon president tyler the advisability of securing california he spoke of it as the richest most beautiful and healthiest country in the world and described the bay of san francisco as being capacious enough to receive the navies of all the world and so strategically situated as to dominate the entire coast the control of this bay and of the harbors of san diego and monterey he went on would give to the united states not only badly needed ports for her whaling vessels but also a potential monopoly of the trade of india and the whole pacific ocean for thompson however california had many attractions besides those of a commercial nature its forests were large enough to build all the ships of all the world's navies and its agricultural possibilities were so great that one day it would become the granary of the pacific since slavery was not likely to flourish in the province he urged the north and the south to compromise any difficulties that might arise on that score and acquire the territory as soon as possible especially because france and england both had their eyes on it i am profoundly satisfied he concluded after warning webster against the designs of european nations upon the territory that in its bearing upon all the interests of our country agricultural political manufacturing commercial and fishing the importance of the acquisition of california 
cannot be overestimated if i could mingle any selfish feelings with interests to my country so vast i would desire no higher honor than to be an instrument in securing it ten days after he had written this dispatch to the secretary of state thompson sent one of like tenor to the president since my despatch to mr webster he began i have had an interview with general santa anna and although i did not broach to him directly the subject of our correspondence i have but little doubt that i shall be able to accomplish your wishes and to add also the acquisition of upper california the latter i believe will be by far the most important event that has occurred in our country i should be most happy to illustrate your administration and my own name by an acquisition of such lasting benefit to my own country upon this subject i beg your special instructions both as to moving on the matter and the extent to which i am to go in the negotiations and the amount to be paid the acquisition of upper california will reconcile the northern people as they have large fishing and commercial interests in the pacific and we have literally no port there be pleased also to have me pretty strongly instructed on the subject of our claims or leave the responsibility to me procrastination the policy of all weak governments is particularly so with this and they are very poor and will never pay us one farthing unless pretty strong measures are taken both webster and tyler were evidently in strong sympathy with the views expressed in this and other official communications from their representative in mexico thompson was given permission to open negotiations for the purchase of san francisco and as much more the province as seemed wise at this time there were a large number of outstanding claims held against mexico by citizens of the united states most of these were long overdue and as mexico had no money in sight to meet them it was suggested that these might be satisfied by a cession of the desired territory in lieu of cash while thompson was seeking to open direct negotiations with mexico webster and tyler were at work upon another proposition in which the acquisition of california was combined not only with other phases of the mexican question but also with the growing difficulty between the united states and great britain over the oregon boundary the plan which bore the name of the tripartite agreement aimed to make mexico great britain and the united states parties to a common arrangement for the settlement of all three questions as outlined by webster the tripartite agreement involved the following proposals one mexico to cede upper california to the united states two the united states to pay blank millions of dollars for the session three of this sum blank millions should be paid to american claimants against mexico four the remainder to be paid to english creditors or bondholders of mexico five the oregon boundary to be settled on the line of the columbia both webster and tyler felt that this arrangement would not only solve most of the difficulties of the administration in foreign matters but would also allay much of the domestic friction which the proposed annexation of texas had brought out at the same time it would make the boundary of the columbia acceptable to the extreme expansionists of the west texas wrote the president might not stand alone nor the line proposed for oregon 
Texans would reconcile all to the line, while California would reconcile or pacify all to Oregon. The plan was therefore pushed vigorously for a time by the administration. Additional impetus was given to it by Webster's deep-rooted desire to secure a harbor on the California coast for the development of the New England's whale fisheries and her Chinese trade. It was even proposed that he should head a special mission to Great Britain to carry through the program. But this plan never materialized, and for a time, also, direct negotiations with Mexico were rendered useless because of the seizure of Monterey by Commodore Jones of the United States Navy. When the excitement created by Jones' act had somewhat abated in Mexico, Thompson made one or two tentative efforts to bring forward the California project, but in these he saw little chance of success unless Santa Ana, then filling his usual role as dictator, should become involved in war with England and cede California to the United States to keep it from falling into British hands. Thompson returned to the United States in the early part of 1844. About the same time, Webster resigned his position as Secretary of State, and Abel P. Upshore came in to take his place. The latter, in turn, after only a few months of service, was killed by an explosion on the USS Princeton, leaving John C. Calhoun to manage the affairs of state. By this time, the administration was so thoroughly involved in the Texas issue that it had little opportunity for other matters of foreign concern. And where the acquisition of California is mentioned at all in the diplomatic correspondence of the period, it is generally linked with the subject of the annexation of Texas. So far as Mexico was concerned, moreover, in whatever negotiations were carried on, there was one insurmountable barrier in the way of the sale of California. The difficulty was clearly stated by Duff Green, one of Calhoun's special agents charged with the negotiating for Mexican territory. I am convinced, he wrote the secretary, that it is impossible to obtain the consent of the government to the cession to the United States of Texas, California, or any part of the public domain of Mexico, whatever. In the midst of a civil conflict where each party is seeking pretenses to murder and confiscate the property of their opponents, and where the principle is maintained that it is treason to sell any part of the public domain to the United States, it is worse than folly to suppose that either party can alienate any part of Texas or California. Green was plainly right in his diagnosis of the situation. But most Americans, eager for territory and cognizant of Mexico's need of funds and the easy virtue of her officials, were slow to grasp the simple fact that any administration, even so much as suspected of a willingness to sell Mexican territory to the United States, was inviting certain overthrow and probable execution at the hands of rival factions backed by an outraged and excited people. This was the barrier that Butler could not surmount in his attempts to purchase California. Similarly, it wrecked the hopes of Thompson, Green, Shannon, and every other American representative sent to Mexico before Polk overthrew it by the stern recourse of war. While Tyler was vainly but hopefully seeking to purchase California, the interests of our government in the province was being shown in other ways. One of these was the seizure of Monterey by Commodore Jones, to which reference has already been made. The details of this affair, which antedated the performance of Sloat and Stockton by five years, 
were briefly as follows toward the close of eighteen forty one abel p upshur then secretary of the navy having received a request from american residents in california for some form of naval protection along the coast had increased the size of the pacific squadron and placed it under command of thomas f catesby jones the relations of mexico and the united states at that time were quite normal that is to say they were strained almost to the breaking point early in september eighteen forty two jones then in the harbor of callao peru received a dispatch from john parrott american consul at mazatlan on the west coast of mexico which led him to believe that war had actually broken out between the two nations having been without advices from washington for nine months and of course lacking an opportunity to communicate with his home government the american commander after consulting with the united states charge at lima and the higher officers of his fleet acted upon his own responsibility in the crisis there appeared moreover to be a need of imperative haste if an english fleet under admiral thomas was to be forestalled in the seizure of california for rumor had it that mexico having declared war upon the united states was about to cede the province to great britain for safekeeping alarmed by these reports jones made all speed from callao to monterey entering that port on october nineteenth with the frigate united states and the sloop cyane here he found neither the british fleet nor sign of warlike preparation most of the garrison were off at work in the fields fort and guns were in their usual state of decay and the ammunition was about gone everything indeed was quiet peaceful and normally dilapidated jones immediately summoned the authorities to surrender a demand which naturally excited a good deal of surprise and consternation since no one on shore had heard of any breach between mexico and the united states monterey however was so completely at the mercy of the invader that juan b alvarado acting governor and mariano silvia military commandant did not even avail themselves of the eighteen hours allowed by jones for capitulation but almost immediately yielded up the port to the american commander the latter took possession of the city raised the american flag cautioned his men against any outrages upon the inhabitants issued a proclamation inviting the californians to accept peaceably the sovereignty of the united states and then began to investigate the report of war between the two countries upon which he had acted the next day becoming convinced that the united states and mexico were still at peace and that his seizure of monterey was premature to say the least jones restored the city to its former rulers lowered the american flag and made formal apology for his unintentional offense against international law so far as the monterayans were concerned this opera bouffe affair called forth little if any ill feeling against the united states or american residents of california indeed jones and his command seem to have met with unusual hospitality at the hands of the supposed enemies after the town had been restored to mexican control in other quarters however the floodgates of indignation and oratory were loosened in a way that mexican officials alone understand when news of jones's act reached governor micheltorena recently arrived from mexico and even then two days march from los angeles on an inspection tour of the northern part of the province 
the latter's patriotic fervor immediately rose to the occasion to the secretary of war and marine he thus described his conduct in the face of such an outrage Quote, i wished myself a thunderbolt to fly and annihilate the invaders but a hundred and ten leagues intervened between them and me and my forces were all infantry on the following day the twenty sixth i began my march with my troops of whose enthusiasm i cannot say too much north and south of my headquarters everything was in motion and the fever of patriotism which i excited with energetic heat beat quickly as you will see by document nine we thus marched for two hours during which my soul was wrapped in ecstasies at the flattering prospect of a speedy and certain victory at this juncture rudely breaking into micheltorena's ecstatic dream a courier arrived with the news that jones had restored monterey and retired to his vessel this sudden change of front if we may believe micheltorena's official statement was not altogether pleasing to the governor who gave it a far different explanation from that offered by jones so his excellency mr blank did not choose to await our arrival as a hostile force wrote micheltorena and the feelings of my heart which were thence transmitted to those of all the officers soldiers and inhabitants of the country were at once of grief and joy of regret and pleasure of contentment and disappointment but providence has so willed it therefore it is for the best and we have only to respect and bow to its decrees in conclusion micheltorena modestly pointed out that had it not been for the activity foresight and energy of four men in forcing jones out of monterey the whole of california would inevitably have been lost to mexico the illustrious four were the benemerito president general don antonio lopez de santa ana general don jose maria tornel minister of war in mexico don gabriel valencia chief of staff and manuel micheltorena the services of the latter especially were dwelt upon as worthy of president santa ana's approbation from micheltorena's military ability as elsewhere exhibited one may fairly say that his genius expressed itself far better with a pen than with a sword and jones could have kept monterey with little fear of being molested had the united states and mexico actually been at war in mexico also the seizure of monterey naturally called forth indignant protest the affair was the subject of very vehement correspondence on the part of the government which demanded not only the condign punishment of jones but much other satisfaction for its injured feelings as well the united states replied by recalling jones and offering formal apologies for his hasty action beyond this however both webster and tyler refused to go one indeed in spite of official denial halfway suspects that jones had received instructions before sailing for the pacific that led him to believe the administration would be much more tolerant with overzealousness in seizing california ports than with a timid and unwise delay a curious aftermath of micheltorena's activities against the invaders appears in the demand he addressed to jones for the payment of an indemnity this included satisfaction for one thousand five hundred complete infantry uniforms which the governor claimed had been ruined by the mexican forces on the march to monterey 
$15,000 to reimburse the Mexican treasury for expenses incurred to meet the invasion, and, finally, a complete set of military musical instruments to replace those ruined on this occasion. If the first item on the list was a fair criterion of the validity of the entire claim, then Micheltorena was certainly gifted with a glorious imagination. His force could not have numbered more than 300 troops at any one time, and not one of these had probably ever had a complete infantry uniform in all his life. End of chapter 11